Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that we can gather here freely, that we can see new faces and old, that we can see friends and see family and rejoice with believers that we know so well and also welcome new people we've never met before. But Father, regardless of who we are or what has brought us here or how many times we've been here before, I pray that we would all gather here with one purpose, and that is to worship you and celebrate the resurrection of your Son. Father, thank you for Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Thank you for the joy and privilege we have of worshiping here today, and the joy and privilege we have of reading this story of our salvation. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ, who lived, died, and rose. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, last week we read about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's the occasion that we Christians refer to as Palm Sunday. As Jesus entered the city, crowds waved palm branches. They shouted Hosanna and talked about the kingdom of David. These crowds had high hopes for Jesus. They had specific expectations. And to some extent, Jesus' own disciples shared those same hopes and expectations. They were all looking at Jesus as their long-awaited warrior king. He was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who was supposed to overthrow Rome and restore Israel to its rightful place of earthly power and glory. But that's not what the crowds would get. You see, a lot would happen in the days between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and Easter Sunday as well. It was a course of events that many would describe as some mixture of awe-inspiring, tragic, overwhelming, or even nonsensical. But what I'll argue this morning is that this seemingly unlikely chain of events was anything but random. It all starts where we left off last week in Mark chapter 11. Jesus enters the city on Sunday, and he gets down to business on Monday. Jesus goes into the temple, what was supposed to be the most sacred and revered place in the Jewish world, and he causes a scene. He drives out the hucksters selling sacrificial animals, knocks over tables and chairs, and refuses to let anybody walk through. The icing on the cake is when Jesus refers to those in the temple as robbers. He accuses them of corrupting this holy place with their wickedness and greed. And of course, none of this sits well with the religious leaders, who had already placed Jesus in their doghouse long before any of this had even occurred. Then you get to Mark chapter 12, where Jesus shares the infamous parable of the tenants. He compares those religious leaders to rebellious servants rising up against the owner of the vineyard where they work. In his parable, these servants' final act of defiance is to kill the owner's son. And Jesus says the owner will judge them severely for their crime. Similar confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders occur throughout the rest of that chapter. And then in Mark chapter 13, Jesus goes so far as to predict 
the temple's destruction. So to sum it all up, Jesus hasn't made many friends since he entered Jerusalem. If anything, he's only added fuel to the fire of his old rivalry with the religious leaders. And that tension has now reached a fever pitch. That's why we read in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now before we go any further, I have to ask, what makes the religious leaders think they have any chance at killing Jesus? By this time, Jesus is one of the most well-known men in their entire country. After all he's done, especially the big, flashy miracles, he likely has a massive and loyal following. He just received a hero's welcome when he came into the city. And on top of that, Jesus has consistently outsmarted the religious leaders throughout his entire ministry. Every time they tried to trip him up, he slipped out of it. Every time they tried to trick him into saying something false, he responded with wisdom and truth. Over and over again, Jesus has made the religious leaders look like fools. So what makes them think that this time will be any different? What makes them think that this plan could possibly work? How can they kill Jesus and avoid the uproar that Mark described in verses 1 and 2. Well, the way this plan just might work is seen in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. That's an understatement. And they promised to give him money. And Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. So with Judas now on their side, the religious leaders put their bold and risky plan into action. So on Thursday night, after Jesus has celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, they're ambushed in the Garden of Gethsemane with Judas at the lead. Jesus is arrested, brought before the religious leaders, made to sit through an absolute joke of a trial, and then turned over to Roman authorities. And more than anything, Pilate, the Roman governor, simply wants this nuisance to go away. He's got bigger fish to fry, and so Pilate gives in to the religious leader's wishes and marks Jesus for crucifixion. That's when we get to Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. We read there. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. All sarcastically, of course. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Well, thanks to Judas, it appears that the religious leaders have finally won. Their plan actually worked. Jesus is dead. The headache is over. They successfully ridded themselves of this meddlesome prophet, and life can return to normal. How could this possibly happen? The disciples must have been wondering what went wrong. You know, this past week I found myself a couple of different times reading Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. That passage about the suffering servant is one of the most well-known passages in the entire Old Testament. It's a popular and appropriate text to read in the days between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Maybe you read it at some point as well. But as I read those words this week, I found myself drawn to one phrase in particular. You may have heard about this if you were at the prayer night on Thursday. There was one verse that got stuck in my mind, and I just couldn't get it out. And it comes from Isaiah 53, verse 10. That reads, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So back to that question we asked a few moments ago. How did the religious leaders finally manage to get the best of Jesus? After all their previous failures, how did they finally outsmart him? Was it that lucky break of the treacherous Judas falling right into their laps? Was it working better together as a team? 
Was it their craftiness in pressuring Herod or their cunning in manipulating Pilate? Was it knowing how to rile up the crowds against Jesus? Was it their clever plan to bring in false witnesses during the trial? Their willingness to lie or their sheer desperation? What made the plan work? Well, to be honest, it's none of those things. The main reason Jesus ends up hanging on that cross isn't because the religious leaders learned from their old mistakes and came up with a better plan this time around. Above all else, Jesus is hanging there because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. After all, think about how we got to this point in the story. Three separate times before they ever even entered Jerusalem, Jesus specifically predicted that he would be rejected, mocked, and killed. At the triumphal entry, Jesus was in complete control of the situation, even down to the donkey that he rode in on. In preparation for the Last Supper, Jesus knew exactly who the disciples should talk to in order to find a meeting place, down to the finest detail. Jesus correctly predicted Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. During his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew exactly when the soldiers would arrive to arrest him. Every single step of the way, Jesus understood what was going to happen to him. Every step of the way, Jesus was in charge. Jesus was nobody's victim. He wasn't some poor soul who caught a few bad breaks. He wasn't the victim of some cruel set of circumstances. He wasn't just another promising religious leader cut down on his youth. He was the perfect and willing sacrifice for our sin, for your sin. The Christ, obeying the will of the Lord to crush him. And crush him he did. Now, when you really think about it, crucifixion is not a very efficient means of execution. There are far easier ways to kill someone. Not that I would know, but there are. Crucifixion required the attention of multiple soldiers, several hours of time, hauling out those big pieces of wood, tracking down some good solid nails. It took a long time, and it was messy. It would take far less energy to just stab someone in the chest than it would be over in a matter of minutes. But the goal of crucifixion wasn't a quick, clean death. The goal was a long, drawn-out suffering. The goal was humiliation. The goal was to make a public spectacle of it. The goal was to send a message to everyone who passed by that Rome's in charge, and don't forget it unless you want to end up here too. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Jesus truly was crushed. The word can be translated beaten to pieces, turned to dust, oppressed, or even emasculated. And that heart-wrenching cry that Jesus utters on the cross my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't cry out, religious leaders, religious leaders, why have you rejected me? 
Or Judas, Judas, why have you betrayed me? Or soldiers, soldiers, why have you crucified me? As Jesus hangs on that cross, he addresses God the Father. Because God the Father is the one who called him there. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That, of course, is Good Friday. But on Easter Sunday, we know that the cross isn't the end of the story. We Christians shudder at the thought of Jesus hanging there for our sin, and rightfully so. But we rejoice at the reality of the empty tomb. We pick up in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We learn from Isaiah 52 and 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But we learn from the Gospels that it was also the will of the Lord to raise him. In the very first sermons of the church's existence, Peter stresses the resurrection of Christ time and time again. In his sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then just a few verses later, Peter preaches, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter also adds that it was the definite plan of God, even if people like Herod and Pilate didn't know it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that it is of first importance to know that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to more than 500 believers at the same time. This resurrection of Jesus is what we celebrate at Easter. It is the cornerstone of our faith from the very beginning. The reason for our hope. The confirmation that our sins really are forgiven. And the public announcement that Jesus really is everything he said he was. Now you may be sitting here thinking... How can you otherwise, normal, reasonable, and well-adjusted people, possibly believe something so ridiculous? Dead people don't rise. We all know that, right? Well, the disciples knew that too. You don't need modern medical technology to know when someone's dead. And just so we're clear, we don't believe that Jesus passed out and woke up later. 
or that the women went to the wrong tomb on accident, or that the disciples were just hallucinating when they claimed to see him alive, or that the first Christians made this all up just to start their own religion. We believe emphatically that Jesus truly died and that Jesus truly rose. We believe the accounts of the disciples eating with him and drinking with him. We believe the story about Thomas sticking his hand in Jesus' side. We believe they saw the holes in his hands and feet with their own eyes. It might sound crazy, but we call it miraculous. Something that only God could do. So on Easter Sunday, we celebrate that it was the will of the Lord to raise him. Now that's all well and good, right? If true. If that's true, it's certainly an amazing story. But what does it mean? Why should we devote our lives to serving this risen Lord? Often at great personal cost. Well, it's because this isn't just another story of good triumphing over evil. Or the underdog making a shocking comeback. Or the establishment finally getting what it deserves. This is the story of our salvation. If you look back to Isaiah 53, that passage about the suffering servant gives us very specific reasons that all this happened. Very specific reasons for Christ's crucifixion. For example, we read in verse 4, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you jump down to verse 8, it says that Christ was stricken for the transgression of God's people. And then in verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Many people think that when Jesus spoke in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, a verse that we read last week, many people think those words were inspired by this passage, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, to take the iniquities of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And it was the will of the Lord to raise him. All because it was the will of the Lord to save us. In Romans chapters 5 through 8, Paul gives a laundry list of all the glorious benefits of this salvation. Peace with God, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, life, calling, freedom, inheritance, glory, assurance, over and over and over again. But then last but not least, Paul argues that someday Christ will return. And we'll experience a resurrection of our own to be in the presence of God. In our sin, we once deserved to be crushed, oppressed, 
beaten to pieces, turned to dust. We were enemies of God, sheep gone astray, no better than those jealous religious leaders, the backstabbing Judas, Herod and Pilate, the Roman soldiers, and the mocking passerbys. But thanks be to God that the cross is finished. Thanks be to God that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. And to this very day, we are called to believe, worship, and follow. Now, there's some debate about where Mark's gospel originally ended. Most say it ended at verse 8, and verses 9 through 20 were added later. Our Bibles usually include verses 9 through 20 because even if they were added later, there's nothing in them that in any way compromises what Mark has written so far. But if you do stop at Mark chapter 16, verse 8, you end in a somewhat weird way compared to Matthew, Luke, and John. If you end at verse 8, the women who find the empty tomb are overwhelmed with fear and astonishment, which really, can you blame them? But then they say nothing to anyone. How long do you think that lasts? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Thirty minutes? Just a little bit of time to gather their thoughts and process what they've seen and heard? I don't know. But what we do know for sure is that soon after that initial shock, the same fear and astonishment that left them speechless would motivate them to share what they had seen and heard. They would share it with Peter. They would share it with the rest of the disciples. And thus they would announce to the world that Jesus is alive. And that announcement still rings true some 2,000 Easter Sundays later. So go, tell the world what they've seen and heard and what you've seen and heard. Go and tell the world that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that it was the will of the Lord to raise him, and that it was the will of the Lord to save us. So go and celebrate, rejoice, and worship how can you not? Because this is good news. In fact, it's the greatest news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. So many Sundays we gather here, we read from your word. We pray, we take communion, we sing songs. And there might even be some Sundays where we read passages or we hear a sermon and we wonder what in the world is the point of all this. But Father, this is not one of those days. Easter Sunday is that yearly reminder of what this is all about. Easter Sunday is that yearly reminder that Christ died, but that Christ also rose. And Father, as we consider that in this year, I pray that we would be just as overwhelmed by that and just as grateful for that as we were the first time that we heard it. I pray that the incredible joy, the incredible shock 
of this story would never lose its effect. I pray that every single time we open up a gospel and read the last few chapters, every single time we open up a passage in the New Testament and read about the resurrection of Christ, every single time we open the Old Testament and read a passage that somehow reminds us of Christ, that looks forward to Christ in a way that we never would have understood apart from Christ, I pray that we would be just as moved, just as humbled, just as grateful for the death and resurrection of Christ as we ever have been before. And so, Father, thank you that as we prepare to leave this place, we know that we live because Christ lives. We know that we live because Christ has died for us. And, Father, we know that as believers, we have died to ourselves that we might live with him. And so may we leave this place rejoicing, celebrating, worshiping just as confidently and loudly and boldly as ever that Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will one day return. We love you. We praise you. We give you and your Son and your Spirit all the glory that we have to offer. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.